and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deep values, the principles that drive the people that shape our common life, and how we might be able to engage better across some of the very deep differences in those principles and values. Every episode, I speak to someone who has some kind of public voice or profile, and I ask them what is sacred to them, what ideas have shaped them, and what are they trying to do in the world? My hope is that by listening to a very wide range of perspectives and tribes and professions, trying to get to the person behind the position, I can grow in empathy and curiosity and resist my temptations towards tribalism. And in so doing, be more part of the solution than the problem for the fractures that are so dividing our common life. If you're enjoying The Sacred, please do rate, review and share it. We hear this request so much that it's easy for it to just become white noise, but I can't tell you how much it helps other people find it. I get contacted regularly from people saying that the podcast has expanded their horizons, that it's helped them understand that people not like them are not in fact monsters, that it's helped them show up in the world with more curiosity and empathy, and that they found it because a friend of theirs sent them an episode and said, I thought you might like this. So why don't you be one of those people today and join Team Sacred by sharing the podcast. If you're enjoying The Sacred, you might also be interested in a separate project that I am involved in, and it is a Substack newsletter that I've started. It's called Fully Alive. You can find it at morefullyalive.substack.com and read all about it there. I really hope you'll consider subscribing. Meanwhile, in this episode of The Sacred, you'll hear a conversation I had with Wes Streeting MP. Wes is Labour MP for Ilford North, which is on the border of Essex and London, and he is Shadow Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. We spoke about his childhood growing up in a council flat in East London, his recently released memoir, which is called One Boy, Two Bills and a Fry-Up, and what drives his political life. There are some reflections from me at the end, as usual, and I really hope you enjoy listening. Wes, it is early in the morning and I have just sprinted back from the school run. So you've been very gracious with me. Despite all that, we're going to go straight into a question that you don't get asked every day on the bus when you meet someone for the first time. Um, You've had a little bit of time to sit with it. For returning listeners, they they know the, the contours of the question. For new listeners, it's really trying to get to deep principles and deep values that drive us. You kind of bracket out family. Uh, to get a sense of your vision of the good that you're trying to move towards? I don't think anyone really knows, but it's an interesting <laughs> question. What bubbled up for you? I think it's a really difficult question, actually, um, not least because you carved out the obvious go-to um, of family and friendship, which I think is sacred, actually, and um, is certainly very important to, to me. Um, but you have banned it. And I am a politician who likes to answer the question put to them rather than the one that I wish I could be answering. <laughs> Thank I, thought you. About this, I thought about this on a number of levels. I think there was something fundamental to me about truth um, and honesty, which is, you know, this is, it can be kind of dangerous territory for a politician to veer into because sadly um, politics and politicians you know, do not have a great reputation for honesty and truth at this particular time, although 
think it's possibly been true for some time. But actually, when I think was thinking about honesty and truth, I was thinking more about um, what Polonius says in Hamlet, which is, um, to thine own self be true. And I think there's something about um, that sort of guides me about being honest to and with myself um, in terms of sticking to my own values, holding myself to my own values, and also being honest where I've fallen short um, and being self-critical. But I think in in the world that I now live in, um, of the House of Commons and being a member of Parliament, I think it's I think it is really important to kind of constantly refer back to your own values and convictions because you can get pulled in all sorts of different directions um fall under all sorts of pressure and naturally i mean i think compromise has become a dirty word i actually think compromise is a really important um feature of our lives like either our everyday interactions with each other and how we might compromise with each other right through to forging broad the broadest possible compromise in a society or even um, as a planet. So uh, in that kind of space, it's even more important, I think, to constantly kind of check yourself against your own kind of mission and values. And for me, the sorts of things that really motivate me are um, a deep commitment to tackling inequality and injustice in our society. I am very much not a typical politician in terms of my background. I grew up in lots of poverty and I've tried to carry all of those experiences from my life into my work now as a member of parliament i have a deep commitment to equality um which sounds like a simple enough principle but even on equality um equality for one might compromise an equality for another so even something as simple as equality can be a challenging concept um and you know, fundamentally, I sort of want to leave the world a better place than I found it. And, um, you know, I, I think we all have or all need a sense of purpose in our lives. And um, that can be different things to different people. I think different people find, you know, people find meaning from purpose and, and what might be one person's drive might be a different person's. But I think having purpose yeah. is also really important. Yeah, thank you so much. Maybe staying on honesty because it's the first thing that came up and I feel like that's often a clue, uh, that integrity, being true to your, your yourself. It may not, but can you think of a time in your life, I'm always interested by how these values guide us as sort of forks in the road and we often know what they are in situations when we feel compromised or we feel the threat of feeling compromised and I mean that in the bad way, not in the good way, which I agree with you about. What is there any kind of moment or story you can think of where you had to choose honesty or integrity and you were under pressure not to? <laughs> got lots of those now. Um, I mean, there was a, a, I'll come, I'll come back to a more fundamental one in a minute. Um, there was one, one area that I don't particularly want to dwell on because it, it sort of opens all sorts of trauma from my first four years as an MP. Um, but I, I think I'm pretty well known for, um, you know, not being the biggest fan of the previous leader of the Labour Party and finding a number of aspects of the Labour Party 
circa 2015 to 2019 very difficult, particularly um, with regards to anti-Semitism, which was a problem, in, a, real, a very real problem in the Labour Party. And that just put me in a very difficult position because I'm an instinctively loyal person. Um, I'm, I desperately want to see my party succeed. And speaking out, I mean, it's, it's one thing to sort of argue with someone you fundamentally disagree with or people you see as opponents. Um, it's much harder, actually, to take on your own side. And I found that very, very challenging. Um, and then I, I guess um, thinking thinking about um, you know, sort of the reflection I've done on my sort of childhood and upbringing, um, I, I, I've I, you know the, the, one of the central themes of the book as I become older and I sort of go to university is finally being honest with myself and others about my sexuality. And trying to reconcile that with my Christian faith as I was growing up, um, that that was very very hard, um, and actually is is part of the reason why I, I kind of chose when I was thinking about what's really important that degree of self honesty, um, because I, I kind of felt this feeling of liberation once I was able to be honest with myself and honest with others. Um, felt as if the weight of the world had lifted off my shoulders. And I think that, um, you know, if you're comfortable in your own skin, you can take on everything else around you. If you're, if you have this inner turmoil, that's a lot more difficult. Yeah. I sometimes think about the phrase, a stable self, a stable soul that is rooted in love. But, and and then when we're rooted enough, we, we don't, we're not so reactive and defensive, are we, to those around us? We can just be in conversation with them, accept that they're different from us and not feel like something deep within us is under threat, which is such an easy way to adults act out in the world as well as children, I think. Yeah. I'd love to hear um, a bit about your childhood and uh, you write really vividly about it in your memoir. And it was re- it was really lovely to, to read it in your own words because it's very easy for it to be summarized in these kind of sound bites of, you know, single mum, although your dad was nearby, you know, council flat, but in a, this network of extended family, you know, running out of electricity, but they're always being food at someone else's house. You know, these, this, I can hear you doing this beautiful job of what I always want to do is like here, but on beyond the caricature to the texture. Yeah and the nuance, but I would love to just hear a bit about that, maybe that time of pre-senior school, and particularly if there are any big ideas in the air, religious, political, philosophical, they're never, they're very rarely talked about in those kind of abstract terms, but I think most people have something in the air that they think formed them. Yeah, I think that's right. There's heaps of complexity um, in my story. Um, It's called One Boy, Two Bills and a Fry Up. Um, I'm the boy, The two Bills are my grandfathers, Bill Streeting on my dad's side and Bill Crowley on my mum's side. Both, I think, epitomise two very different stereotypical East End families. Um, One, you know, my dad's side, the Streetings, straight lace, buy the book, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, um, respect law and order, respect the monarchy, um, respect tradition, Granddad was um, in the Royal Navy in the Second World War, became a civil engineer, um, and, and you know, f- following his divorce from my my grandmother, the, his, his young wife, um, was a single dad. 
a very nuclear East End family. Um, my, on my mum's side, you've got Bill Crowley, who was in and out of prison throughout my mum's childhood and my childhood with, with a string of convictions for armed robbery. Um, my mum was born in prison, um, well, not technically in prison, um, up the road at um, the Whittington Hospital. My nan was in Holloway Prison where she shared a cell with Christine Keeler, who was at the centre of the Profumo Affair. Um, and all of these things, I think, captured people's attention and imagination about, oh, this could be a great book, but there are deeper stories and complexity and certainly not a glamorous story as I reflect on, you know, the however much we might um, glamorise in media, the craze and sort of gangster life. There was nothing glamorous about it for my family in terms of its impact. And the book starts with the final bit of the um, the, the, the title, The Fry Up, because my parents were very young. Um, I think I'm technically what known as an accident. Um, and, you know, lots of people, my dad included, and, and the rest of the family wanted my mum to have an abortion. Um, my mum had booked the appointment. And then you know, shortly before, you know, a few days before, she basically decided she wasn't going to go through with it. Um, she didn't tell anyone. Um, and on the morning of the appointment, she cooked herself a full English breakfast, which she never would normally do. But she cooked herself a fry up, ate it. And by the time my nan realised what was going on and said it's time to go to the hospital, my mum announced very um, determinedly that she couldn't go through with it because you're not allowed to eat before the procedure and she just had a full English breakfast. And then it, the proverbial hits the fan all hell breaks loose in that kitchen um, as my mum sets in train a sequence of events of falling out with my dad and with the family because she's determined to keep the baby. And thank goodness she did, because <laughs> I'm here. Um, so that's the... And, and then the, the, the sort of story opens up, really, by talking about the challenges of, for my parents of being young parents, not having enough money. My mum absolutely determined to prove herself, um, having had a baby against the wishes of the family, Actually, having had a baby against a backdrop of some people in the family saying that she'd be a bad mother, that I'd be a battered child because my mum had had a very violent upbringing in the house with my grandparents. Um, and my mum was determined to prove them wrong. And again, thank goodness she did, because I think she did. Um, and and yeah, we, we, we chart a course through the East End of the 1980s, a very complicated place again. Yes, lots of poverty um, and inequality, you know, certainly that I experienced and be began to come alive to because the East End was also one of gentrification of the London Docklands beginning to emerge, a new gentrified middle class moving in. And, and I had a window into that world that made me acutely aware of my own relative disadvantage. You know, my early childhood, I was oblivious to the fact that, you know, we didn't have carpets on the floor when we first moved into our flat or you know, we, we weren't able to do the sorts of things or have the sort of things that maybe other kids did because I didn't know, didn't know any better. I was just a happy kid. Um, and then I began to, to sort of look through a window into middle-class life and thought, wow, yeah, this is what I'm growing up with. This is not normal. We are, we are worse off. Yeah. And I could probably going back to, and I promise not to take this long answering every question, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think good to go back to your, your sort of opening question about, the spark, I guess that was the thing that lit the spark for me about the unfairness mm. of it. And yet, you know, and, and I felt this very much when I was, you know, reflecting on the book, bucket loads of potential in my family um, that was unrealized because of the conditions we were growing up in. 
Yeah. What really comes through is just how hard your mum had it. Like, Mm. I slightly fell in love with your mum and felt very defensive of her throughout the book. Was, you know, her dad was violent. Her mum ended up in prison. She had a violent boyfriend at one point. She was kidnapped. Just, like, hideous, ongoing pain for her. What do you think steadied her? What made her able to be you know, we're all good enough parents. None of us are perfect parents, mm. right? But she raised you not with your dad nearby, but mainly on your own. You were put in a drawer when you were first born because she couldn't afford a cot, you know, uphill struggle. What do you think she was drawing on that made her able to raise you? Um, without speaking for my mum, I think that actually having a baby was probably one of the best decisions she made. I think it gave her, going back to what I was saying about purpose, I think it gave her purpose and meaning in life. And, you know, when she was reflecting her childhood to me, which I write about in the book and tell, you know, take the opportunity to tell her story, I was really struck by the fact that despite being disruptive at school and despite the chaotic home life, she really enjoyed being given responsibility. She enjoyed the responsibility of managing the Wendy house at school and that kept her in school. Um, she enjoyed the responsibility of taking kids from the estate on kind of like days out. She loved, you know, she loved responsibility. And I think that, you know, having a baby kind of gave her purpose and anchored her um, because you're right, she had lots of hardship. But, you know, one of the nice things about having a young mum, you know, uh, and especially having got to that age, and reflecting on it at the time, probably too young a mum, because I do think she sacrificed a lot of her childhood, really, and her youth. But I just remember us being quite happy a lot, actually, despite the hardships and doing crazy things like, you know, when we go and see my nan walking from Stepney to Wapping, there'd be bollards on the street. She would be doing leapfrogs over them. She was doing a leisure and recreation course at the local college and was wants to be a fitness instructor at one point and she'd come in and play short tennis with kids in my school as a sort of coach. So, um, yeah, I think, I think definitely having, having a child gave her purpose. Um, and one of my sisters, um, become a young mum. And I think, I think she'd probably say the same about my niece. Um, and again, doing a really brilliant job, um, sort of bringing up a child on her own. Um, I think that, yeah, I think people find purpose and meaning in life in different ways. And I think children is a big part of it for for lots of people. And I think being a mum was probably the best thing that happened to her. Yeah. I need to move on because there's so much else I want to talk to you about, but I just have to get you to tell me about Nanny Libby because (laughs) she sounds like an absolute force of nature. She is. And she, she, um, she's a complicated character. And I, I, um, I, I, I've always struggled to sort of reconcile the nanny Libby that I grew up with, sort of loving grandmother, loving to me, loving to my mum, with the nanny Libby that's described in the earlier part of the book in my mum's childhood of actually being a harsh mum, you know, dishing out kind of beatings to my mum with a buckle end of the belt. Um, You know, I, I think my nan had it really hard with my granddad, you know, being married to a, you know, convicted criminal. Um, and living that kind of life, finding herself in prison as a result of being drawn into his criminal activity. 
But the nanny Libby I knew, you know, she was a warrior for social justice. She would be on the picket lines outside News International um, picketing Rupert Murdoch when he moved to Wapping. Um, she would constantly be rabble-rousing around the, um, the estate and where she lived. She, was, she ran the local tenants' association. I definitely think I, I have got my nan's kind of political kind of drive and that desire to help people and to challenge injustice and you know that kind of I've got I've definitely got a rabble-rousing streak that I inherited from her but for absolutely formidable woman and um you know one of my favorite stories in the book which you know you you alluded to my mum's um very abusive partner um who at one point abducted my mum uh and you know thankfully was sent to prison thanks to the courage of my mum in reporting him to the police at a time when domestic violence i mean even today frankly domestic violence is a huge issue that doesn't go that goes woefully under prosecuted but even back then in the 80s it was even harder and there is this great moment in the book that my mum describes where my nan turned up at the building site where he worked carrying a very heavy bicycle chain and she proceeds in the middle of all of his workmates to batter him this sort of five foot kind of short woman battering him with a bicycle chain as she sort of tells everyone around stood around exactly what this beating is for and I think she ends up with quite a lot of sympathy from the the rest of them on the building site and apparently he lost his job afterwards um but you know i i you can't really condone it in a way but i um it was funny when we were going through the editing process because there was this sort of line that was edited in which sort of had a heavy disapproving tone and i had to sort of walk the editors back and say well it's actually not how i feel about this i feel really conflicted you know yeah. i don't think people should just go around dishing out beatings but given what he did to my mum i can't say i'm i can't say i'm not a little bit proud of my nan for taking matters into her own hands and yeah. standing up for her daughter um and i just love this the idea of this sort of tiny little woman <laughs> taking yeah. on this big bloke yeah um, it's brilliant so she is a hero in the story. Like there's, there's definitely a redemption arc for Nanny Libby. Yeah. And there was, ch- church was present in your childhood. How did that come Very about? So. And what, what are your kind of, I guess, emotional memories attached to that place? Uh, yeah, so ch- church, church was very important to me. I, um, I went to St. Peter's Primary School in Wapping. In fact, I am popping back there today to go and talk to some of the pupils, which I'm really looking forward to. And um, it's a Church of England primary school. Um, now, my dad's dad uh, was a Christian, didn't go to church every Sunday, but very, very devout faith. Nanny Libby, on my mum's side, used to be in the Salvation Army, but um, when her eldest son um, was killed in a car accident, she, she lost her faith at that point and didn't rediscover it until, until her final days. And so I wasn't surrounded by religion at all at home. Uh, my granddad would always say the Lord's Prayer to me when we go to go to sleep at the weekend, but that was it. So at school, those weekly trips to St. Peter's Church um, on Wapping Lane 
that was my first sort of encounter really with Christianity, um, with religion of any kind. And I absolutely loved it. I mean, it's clear that there were some kids for whom going to church was a chore. There were some kids that for whom going to church was borderline heresy because they were Muslim kids and I used to really feel for them actually having to traipse along. I mean, it was nice in a way they got to... So I was talking to a friend, actually, um, Rishanara Ali, who's um, uh, a fellow Labour MP, Muslim, and also attended St Peter's Primary School. And I was talking to her about this, and she said, oh, I used to really love going because of all the smells and the bells, and it was just interesting seeing another... You know, so obviously I didn't pray, she said, but I quite enjoyed seeing someone else's place of worship in a way that frankly I enjoy today as an MP going to going around the place. But, um, but I, I, yeah, I really enjoyed, um, I really, really enjoyed going to church. Um, and, and more than that, I think through assemblies and through the sermons, I, I just, I think my, my, fundamentally my moral compass is underpinned by Christian teaching and by what I learned. And I really threw myself into it. I was a sort of kid who loved reading in church. I loved service, serving in church. Um, I had one or two disasters, not least when I was given the responsibility of being the thoroughfare and flinging the incense around the church and put too much in. So there's one afternoon where the kids emerged spluttering and coughing with bloodshot eyes into the street. And I was <laughs> given a firm rebuke by Father Peel, who was the priest in charge at the time. Um, uh, but I loved it. I absolutely loved it. To the extent when we were, when we were given the opportunity to be confirmed, I mean, I hadn't even been baptised at that stage. Um, I said I really wanted to do it, but I needed to get my parents' permission. And both of them thought, because I was about 10 or 11 at the time, they thought I was far too young to make such a choice. And I, I begged and begged and pleaded and said, I am old enough to make a choice. And I, in the end, I enlisted my granddad and we talked through it as a family. And I said, look, this, my faith means so much to me. Like, I, I understand the solemnity of this commitment and I want to make it. And it's, it's my right and my choice to make it. And and my parents relented and 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 said, okay, well, okay, well, we'll let you get baptized and confirmed. Um, so that's how important my faith was as I was growing up, and I yeah. I got that from my from my schooling, fundamentally supported by my granddad. Yeah, and you went on to senior school uh, right across the city, which sounds like you you did well academically, but it wasn't a super brilliant environment either academically or in terms of some horrible bullying yeah that's right it was the irony was um my head teacher at mrs uh, st peter's mrs dodd who gets you know she's definitely one of the most formative people in my life and education um she was determined that i would escape tower hamlet schools because london schools generally had a bad reputation at the time and tower hamlets in particular the worst so um she sent me to a school called westminster city where she'd sent kids in the past, they'd done well, it had a good reputation. Of course, it sounds very nice, Westminster City. Um, but then we got there and it couldn't be as far removed from the private school, West, the Westminster School. Um, and not just in terms of it being a state school and the kids there being largely drawn from council estates across South West and East London and North London. It was an all-boys school. It was tough. Um, 
The education standards at the time weren't great. There was turbulence of school leadership. We had Ofsted in, put us in special measures, and bullying was rife. Um, in fact, my kind of salvation at the time was um, school drama and building friendships through school drama and finding my self-expression and my voice and my confidence through school drama. But that was a tough school. And uh, part of the bullying that I got was homophobic um, and, part, and, and largely driven by the fact that I'd arrived at Westminster City with my best friend from primary school, Luke, um, and we, we just stuck together. We were utterly inseparable, best of friends. We'd been best of friends from the age of five. But as a result, you know, our friendship drew ridicule. And it goes, she goes back to your initial question, actually, about, um, you know, what is sacred. And for me, my friendship was a, a non-negotiable. The number of kids who said to me, oh, look, if you didn't hang around with Luke, like, you're all right, you'd be all right. And I just thought, there's no way I'm throwing this friendship under a bus for some popularity of people who aren't particularly nice. But I guess the other cruel irony I'd reflect on, and I say this to teenagers now when I talk in schools about what life is like as a teenager. It's really hard. No one tells you how hard being a teenager is going to be. You know, you get the spots, the raging hormones. You try, you're, you're, you're not old enough to do the things that you want to do, but you're, um, you feel too old to do the things you always love doing. It's a hard time. You're finding yourself. You're learning about yourself. You're trying to find your, how you fit in and your place in, in, the, in, the, in the changing scheme of things. And yet kids are so utterly ruthless in exploiting the vulnerabilities of each other. And, and I think there's a cruel irony, actually, that kids in my secondary school seemed to know that I was gay before I did. And so um, it was tough. But the school and the teachers, some of the brilliant teachers I had, did really well by me. So I actually, ironically, came out of Westminster City in good shape and moving on to a brighter future. But I would say that I survived rather than thrived in my first five years at Westminster City. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing to hear you say that friendship is sacred and I should, you, 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 you're the first person who's pushed back on it. And I think that it's, <laughs> I should explain. <laughs> it's because from what I understand from all our kind of polling and research, family is the one value that almost everyone has in common. Exactly. Um, It'd be a really boring so start to your podcast if every if yeah. every time someone said, my family and friends are really important, all the listeners are yeah, like, yeah, skip yeah, ahead yeah, 15 yeah. seconds until this is over. Yeah, we know. Exactly. We know. And it's, it is an important thing because it can be such a unifier and such a bridge builder when you have someone with radically different values in other ways. Hearing each other talk about your families is one of my favorite like peace building reconciliation moves because everyone settles down and recognizes something in common. But yes, it doesn't make good radio, but I'm glad you snuck in friendship as sacred. <laughs> um, tell me a bit about that. I kind of want to listen to the twin threads of your faith and sexuality. Mm. Um, and normally at this point with someone who's had faith in their childhood, I'd ask them if they had a crisis of faith because lots of people either lose their faith or, or have a period of wrestling with it in their teens. And I wonder if for you, maybe it wasn't at all related to your sexuality, but could you just tell me how those two things were unfolding in your teens and maybe your early 20s? Yeah, there was definitely a schism. Um, and I, I guess I almost felt like I was being forced to choose. Um and I, I chose God kind of all the way through secondary school. Um, 
I sort of really agonised about this. In fact, when some of my friends, when one of my, you know, my best friend Luke did actually eventually tell me he was gay while we were at secondary school and we hung around with, you know, a few other people who you know, also ended up being gay and I'm sure it's no coincidence that we sort of all found each other at school. Um, I sort of kept myself apart from them almost. I could sort of feel this wedge building and it was partly a religious one. And I would talk, I would, you know, I don't think I go into this so much in the book, but I would talk to my best friend about how he reconciled his faith in his sexuality. And and I think he made a very binary choice at that time, which was, well, I, I'm, yeah, I don't really agree with this religious teaching and therefore that's, that's me done with it. Um, and I sort of stuck with it. Um, right through until university where I I just knew from the moment I first told someone that I was gay and woke up the next day having like been in floods of tears in the kitchen um, at the house I was living with and I'd spoken to one of my very best friends about it uh, and it was sort of a, a late night, I'd, you know, I'd been out, so I'd had a few to drink, which is probably where the honesty came from. And I had gone to bed in sort of floods of tears and full of fear and anxiety about what would happen next. And I woke up the next morning feeling the complete opposite. And it was, as I described earlier, that feeling of total liberation. I felt like the weight of the world had lifted from my shoulders. And I remember looking in the mirror and laughing with relief. And I felt like I was looking in the mirror and finally recognized the person that was looking back at me. And at that point, I thought, this is, this is absolutely who I am. And I need to work out what this means on, with everything else and all of my other fears and anxieties, including my faith later. And in fact, my, my first boyfriend, Ed, who I write about in the book, um, he shared a letter with me that his priest had sent him which was basically an affirmation of you don't need to choose between who you are and your faith. And it meant a lot to me that Ed shared that letter with me. But I wasn't entirely convinced still at that point. I think it's taken me a lot longer and I've worked through and for years and years when people would ask me about this, I'd say, I'm still working through this. This is not easy. Um, and all I can tell you is that, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I don't think I've chosen to be gay. In fact, I spent years and years and years and years choosing not to be. And it's harmful and painful. And um, I think it's one of the reasons why lots of young LGBT people and actually adults as well really struggle with their mental health because it is very, very time consuming and painful and damaging trying to be someone you're not so I'd sort of come to the conclusion I think this is who I am I think this is how I've been made and I think that therefore you know uh, whether or not Leviticus means what orthodox teaching means I, I you know I think that's secondary I think I know in my heart where I sit and then more recently I, um, one book that I think has been, you know, really, really inspirational in terms of my faith and theology was Michael Corrin's The Rebel Christ. I think it is a 
it's a brilliant book um, rooted in, I think, scripture and an understanding of scripture that will be highly contested within within my church, the Church of England, and with the, across Christian churches in the UK and around the world. But it is a brilliant and and um, I think I think compelling case for kind of what the real lessons of Jesus were and how we ought to live our lives, which I found in, both inspirational and challenging, actually, in terms of my work. Um, so that's been helpful, I think. But it's still, as I think all of us would say who are Christians, that, you know, it's me- your relationship with God is meant to be difficult. It's mm. not meant to be easy. We haven't been given this easy path. So um, but I'm still working through it. I describe myself as a practicing Christian, practicing and still not very good at it. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question on it and then I will let you off the hook because I never like to torture politicians. It is so hard to say anything about these deep things in public and very vulnerable and I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> but I just, people listen to this podcast are, who come from all face and none. And so I always like to hear when I do have... People of faith, interesting phrase, right? I feel like we all have faith in something. But anyway, that the in the in the colloquial uses, people of faith. What does it just mean day to day? What does it look like in your life? Um, how does it show up for someone who might have no experience? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um well, I think it, there are a number of ways. I think some of which sounds totally bonkers to people who, you know, do not believe in religion and don't believe in God and will kind of just think, oh, okay, and sort of roll their eyes and sort of almost humour you or even mock. Um, but, you know, it's partly about prayer um, and sharing your anxieties and um, wishes um, you know, in the privacy of that relationship. Um, I think it's also about trying to be the sort of the, the, the best you can be um, and the best, the best kind of person you can be. Because, I mean, one of the great things about my, my job as the MP for Ilford North on London-Essex border is I've got such a diverse constituency in terms of not just ethnicity but religion i've got a really big muslim jewish hindu sikh community we've got and um, not so much in my constituency but in redbridge as a whole we've got a zoroastrian community so we've got everyone around here pretty much and i get to go to other people's places of worship or talk to other people about their faith there are some really common underpinnings and i see the generosity of people's faith um you know, all the time from soup kitchens, food banks, um, support for refugees, um, everyday acts of kindness. Um, And for me, that's part of my sadness of how religion and politics sometimes interface. Because often I find, you know, I, I was stunned actually when I first started talking I didn't really think much about saying, oh, yeah, I grew up as a Christian and I'm a, I, you know, I'm a Christian and my faith does inform, you know, what I do as a politician. I was really taken aback by the reaction on social media and the hostility that lots of people feel about politicians of faith because they associate it with 
um, bigotry and taking rights away from other people. So they often think about votes on social issues, whether equal marriage for LGBT people or um, a woman's right to choose in the case of abortion. And, and look, you know, faith does play a role in those debates. And, and, you know, goodness me, we have those debates within our faith communities as well. But I think actually fundamentally at the heart of what binds Christians and Jews and Muslims and Sikhs and Hindus and Zoroastrians and others together is I think they're fundamentally about love and care for others than yourself. I think that's a, there's a fundamental underpinning there. So this should, this ought to be inclusive, mobilizing, and bridge building, not exclusive or um, fear inducing. And so that's one of my sadnesses, and it's why. Um, you know, when I've seen the Archbishop of Canterbury and the leadership of my church speaking up on issues like poverty or housing, sometimes getting themselves in a bit of hot water, I'm so proud of them because I think we do need that moral leadership and, and we need that challenge from our faith communities to say, hang on a minute, we've got to think, we've got to think big here and think radically and think about how we care for people other than ourselves. Yeah. I want to hear about your work as an MP. And I, I talk to people in all kinds of roles in public life. I talk basically with anyone who I feel like is helping weave this uh, strange organism in which we all move, which I call our common life. You know, some people are telling stories, some people building institutions, some people are leading businesses, some people are making the ideas that come out of the universities and some people are are in government and listening to the values that are driving all those people might give us a clue of the kind of value soup that we're we're living in um i want to hear does it feel like a vocation for you and if so what are you trying to do very much so um it's a vocation it is it, it is all consuming in terms of my life and um when I was off with my cancer treatment, uh, it's the first time probably since I was at school that I genuinely stopped to do nothing apart from read and reflect. And one of the bits of reflecting you do is, you know, am I living my life in the way that I really want to? And if this had all gone horribly wrong, would I regret the way that I've spent my time? And the affirming thing about all of that was, you know, I love my job, I love what I do, um, I'm trying to do a number of things. One is to um, serve and represent my local community in Ilford North. And we, you know, I'm uh, embedded in the community. And, you know, I live here, but, um, you know, I love doing school visits. I love meeting people. I, I actually, people always say, apologize if they sort of stop to talk to me in, in the supermarket or the pub. I love it when people do that, actually. And I, I really love the fact that, people feel able to approach me and they don't see me as this kind of like aloof, distant figure who's sort of too grand to be approached. Um, I, I love the fact we're able to help thousands of people every year. I despair at the cases actually where we know we don't get people the answers or the solutions they deserve because the law and sort of public policy isn't on their side. And that's what sort of drives me, I guess, in national politics is, you know, I really... Like politics is a way to make a really big difference. And I sort of, I feel so sad sometimes seeing politics 
especially for the last eight years I've been an MP. I mean, I'm, you know, it's been an unhappy coincidence, by the way. It's not all my fault that politics has been so awful. <laughs> there is just a coincidence. It happens to go rapidly downhill when I got elected. But I hate seeing politics in the news for all the wrong reasons, whether it's harassment in Parliament or people who've, you know, told lies or... Um, just the sort of deep cynicism about our motivations. Because I, I genuinely think, actually, that when I look across the House of Commons to the Conservative benches, I don't see a bunch of kind of evil pantomime villains who sort of go into work thinking, oh, how do I plunge more children into poverty today? Um, I actually see a bunch of people who are also motivated by public service, who want to make our country a better place. We don't always agree about the best way to do that. And that's the ground in which the battle of ideas and democracy is contested. And that's a good thing. Democracy is healthy, um, but politics has a bad rep. But I think fundamentally it is a vehicle for bringing about serious, fundamental and lasting change. Um, but the more, more I'm in politics, the more I realise we can't do it alone. And I meet people all the time who are able to make a really big and powerful difference whether at a very local community level or even at the very individual level. But I also sort of meet, you know, leaders in business and civil society and, um, you know, charities and places of worship who are making a really big difference. And I think politics can amplify that, can enable even more of it, or it can be an impediment to it. Um, I'm probably less... Um, I'm probably less of the of a single-minded view that it's all about politics and politics is primary and unless politics works, nothing else does. I think it's a little bit more complicated than I maybe thought in my more idealistic youth. Hmm. But, um, you know, I think loads of change can happen in loads of places, but politics is still, I think, fundamental to achieving it and that's what I'm in it for. Yeah. And I want to finish on a question about divides because rising polarization was the motivation uh, for this project. And it seems from the outside that there are a few places that are more adversarial than the House of Commons. You know, it's literally set up. So you, you, you look at each other across the benches um, and they're sort of theatre of prime minister's questions, the, the sort of strangeness of the jeering and the um, slagging each other off. But I know that uh, there is also the need to work together and to compromise and to get things done. So I guess it's a, it's a tricky two-part last question. One is how do you navigate, you, you've mentioned in the book, you know, to be a politician, you have to have a skin like a rhinoceros. How do you navigate, you know, kickback for being Christian, kickback for being gay, Chris, kickback for everything, you know, kickback for whatever decisions you make and the divides between you and those outside. And then how do you navigate the divides between you and other politicians to, to get anything done? What have you learned? Um, I guess the reassurance I can offer is it's not as bad as it looks. There's actually much more collegiate working and thinking in the House of Commons than people see on the television, partly because, you know, as any TV producer will tell you, sort of getting everyone on politics live daily to kind of say, oh, yeah, I really agree with that. Let me build on that point. Just doesn't make for as interesting TV as seeing ideas contested. But, um, you know, there's a huge amount of cross-party working that go takes place on um, single issues or 
by parliamentary select committees. Um, I've got friendships across the political divide, which I really value. Um, I think it's healthy that we listen to each other a bit more and we avoid impugning each other's motivations, which is why I was really keen to point out that, you know, my political opponents in the Conservative Party, with with some exceptions, because um, everyone's got their rotten apples, but um, most of them are there because they're motivated by public service and wanting to serve their country. Um, I, I do think, though, as a society, because I think it's a bigger challenge beyond politics, it's not all about social media, but social media has brought out the worst in us. I think there's something about being able to have an argument with someone online that you don't have to you know, look at them face to face and meet them in the eyes and respond to their emotional reaction there and then. It become and, and, and the succinctness, of particularly of platforms like Twitter that don't really allow for much nuance, it becomes glib, it becomes coarse, it becomes adversarial, and it becomes about um, clicks and likes and retweets from your base rather than kind of reaching out to build compromise and consensus. Um, mm. And I think that's a very unhealthy place for a democracy and a society to be in. And the worst thing that could happen is people say, actually, I've just given up. And I see this all the time when I'm out campaigning. You know, I meet people who will say, I just think you're all as bad as each other. I've stopped voting years ago. I don't think it can make any difference. That's mm. a really dangerous place for a democracy to be because I think it was Churchill who said democracy um, is the worst system until you consider all the others. So yeah. um, I think we've got a lot of work to do collectively. Politicians, yes, certainly we've got to take a lead. But as a society, I think we've got to work hard to create more space for dialogue and, you know, authentic and um, respectful conversation and debate and discussion and to, to remember that compromise isn't a dirty word. Actually, some of the, some of the best things that we've, we've achieved have come about through compromise. How do you, and other politicians that I've talked to are on social media purely in broadcast mode, i.e. they don't see their mentions or they, they've had to put in lots of systems in order not to be constantly dealing with a deluge of abuse. How have you navigated that? Yeah, so you asked me about how I deal with I. I, I I mean, I'd be lying if I said that it doesn't get under my rhinoceros-like skin from time to time. I've done, I'm, I'm much better at zoning it out than I was eight years ago when I was first elected, and not just by restricting notifications, because I do occasionally kind of delve beyond the, the, the firewall of my notifications restrictions just to see what people are saying and kind of roll my eyes and laugh and log back into the safe space again. Um, but um, I think I've tried to think about social media a bit like, like I rationalise it as how would I behave in the real world? So, you know, when I was first elected and certainly before I was elected as an MP, if there's an argument taking place online, I just might get involved or if someone had sort of goaded me on something, I might engage and you realise actually all you're doing is amplifying. And it would be a bit like walking into a pub, seeing two people having an argument 
that you don't know and then just walking into the middle of it and saying i'm you know i'm joining this argument how and here's my two pence worth or walking into a you know walking down the street and someone yelling at you and saying i know what i'm going to do i'm going to turn around and have a conversation with this person yelling at me like we don't behave like this in real life we we've got to start applying some of our you know real world norms to the social media space and thing actually very happy to have a respectful conversation with you if you're reasonable we need to have a good discussion but if you're kind of a very aggressive ranty shouty person in the corner i'm not going to go and sit with you um so i think that if i think we if we all did that social media might be a slightly healthier place yeah and on those wise words west streeting thank you so much for speaking to me on the sacred thank you for having me So one piece of context you need to know on this conversation is for possibly the first time ever, I was late for this recording. I had been in a different time zone when I checked the time of the recording and uh, Google Calendar adjusts accordingly. So uh, I was merrily uh, elsewhere when I got a call from Dan, our producer, to say that Wes was online waiting for an interview. And as you can imagine, uh, someone who is pathologically prompt, never late for anything uh, and particularly knows how difficult it is to schedule time with politicians and how tight their calendars are. Um, it, it was a, it was not my favourite start to the day. I sprinted back from the school run and uh, anyone who's watched the YouTube video will see that I am pouring sweat throughout this conversation. <laughs> um, and uh, that could have created a really difficult entry into a conversation with someone that I'd never met and I didn't know. But Wes was really gracious and... Uh, patient and not at all um, kind of aloof or irritated about that beginning of the conversation, uh, which I was really grateful for. And he started with this sacred value of truth to um, to your own self be true, this Shakespeare quote, um, staying true to your conscience, which um, I have an interesting relationship with uh with that, I think it's both an incredibly good call to stay loyal to our values, to, to know what is sacred to us and live by it. Um, it can it can present as a sort of, um, it's, it's often the thing that people say who are just self-confessed contrarians and really like uh, showing up in the world with that adversarial energy. But that's not what comes through um, with where's what, what came through is just a sense of wanting... Um, wanting to listen to his conscience and then combining it with compromise is a, is, is maybe a kind of health, health, healthy and helpful combo actually to stay true to your values, but as far as possible within that frame to find ways to work with broad coalitions. And he said something about um, when he came out and, you know, it's a very moving thing when you hear someone recount that moment and um, that sense of suddenly being comfortable in his own skin and honestly, I have interviewed quite a few politicians now and it's hard for them. It's hard for them to be comfortable in their own skin. They are, Their own skin is in the glare of publicity and critique at all times. Um, but yeah, there did seem to be quite a refreshing sense of a, a steady sense of self or a comfort um, in his own skin coming from Wes. We touched on how difficult his childhood is and because the memoir's coming out, you'll be able to read in more detail about that in in lots of other places. But there was this really distinct sense of it not being 
you know, not being eaten, to use the um, the stereotyped example that a disproportionate number of politicians experienced in their childhood, that there were times when their electricity went off, um, when the flat was infested with fleas, you know, when um, they had to treat other family members' uh, cupboard, kitchen cupboards as their larder because there was no there was no food in their own house, and um, that can't help but be formative, right? It can't help but shape how you see the world and your understanding of politics. And it was really helpful for me just to be personal for a second as I was listening because I'm kind of one generation down from similar origins. And I think part of the reason I fell in love with Nanny Libby is that uh, I had a nanny. And for for international listeners, this is one of those ridiculous British tiny class signifiers that we do. Uh, people who had nannies who were grandmothers, that's a, that's often a sort of working class usage um, compared to people who had nannies who were child carers. It's one of the sort of like jostles and signifiers that you come up against. Um, I had a, a an East End nanny um, and her childhood was really dissimilar to, uh, it was sounds similar to Wes's mum that she grew up uh, with a lot of struggle and... Um, not in a place where a child could easily flourish, not with money, not with peace, not with enough food, in fact. And thinking about the ways the different branches of our family have um, been impacted by that and where kind of almost accidental seeming injections of privilege or opportunity or money or education have showed up, for example, in my life, and where they haven't. Um, and so I, I do think it's it's so helpful to hear those stories. And this thing that he came through with about responsibility and agency, again, I think is a really um, something that will stay with me, that it's people who whose paths in life are difficult, um, don't want to be victims, don't want to be pitied. They often want to be given some agency and some responsibility that they can grab hold of. Uh, was his conversation about the Church of England primary school, I was so aware that if you are someone who is a Christian who thinks it's a good thing where when people become Christians, you will be thinking, well, brilliant, Church of England primaries, primaries do what they uh, do, do a good job of that. And if you are someone who are not, it might be confirming all your worst fears <laughs> that um, Church of England primaries can be places where people encounter uh, Christianity and are drawn to it. But it in, both in person and in the book, I get such a sense of how much of a haven that primary school was for Wes and how much of a place of um, encouragement and um, and steadying, how much time he spent there really. Uh, not as an escape from his home life, because there was lots of that was good in his home life, but as a really kind of healthy complement to his home life. Um, and then this really sad chapter about getting bullied at senior school. Honestly, as someone with children heading towards that age group, it just fills me with absolute horror. How do you protect? How do you protect children? Um, how do you raise children with the kind of resilience that uh, can navigate that time? I mean, Wes seems to have come through it 
with aplomb. So maybe that's maybe there's a hopeful thing in there. And I, I just love that detail about school drama. It, um, it's just a really charming thing. And the, the, the echoes of that in a politician's life of wanting to hold the room and have a kind of public persona is a really helpful clue for me about who Wes is. I really enjoyed his honesty about navigating his sexuality and his faith and the complexity of that and um, still wrestling through some of that. And you might have noticed that we didn't talk a lot about Wes's politics and that is because... Uh, it's really hard to get particularly uh, ministers or shadow ministers to talk about their politics in anything other than carefully rehearsed sound bites. And, and when we veered into that territory, it was the only time actually that I felt like Wes was just a, a bit less um, accessible as a human being. Um, so if you were coming on expecting a deep dissection of uh, Wes's politics and the fact that he's a kind of seen as a centrist um, Labour Party member or a more conservative leaning Labour Party member. I'm sorry to disappoint you. I have learned from many years of uh, interviewing politicians that it's just almost impossible for them to speak with the level of not honesty, but humanness and nuance and complexity. And um, uh, it just I just don't find it that interesting trying to talk to politicians about their politics because it can only be polished and uh, PR-tested nuggets. And you can go anywhere you like for that. Uh, there's no need to come here. And then we ended on uh, division in Parliament. And I do hear this a lot, that it's not as bad as it looks. And that because you politicians have to work together, they have to compromise and they have to physically be in the same space, it acts as kind of guardrails on that tribalism and that polarisation. And there's something to be learned in that, that we need institutions where we're forced to compromise. We need organizations and physical spaces where we are forced into proximity with each other, where we have to listen to each other. Um, and it also reminds me again of how I need to really take care about how I consume media because our natural way of reporting is to look for the extreme, to look for the divisive and not to bother telling the stories of a compromise reached or a friendship across the aisle or um, moments of forgiveness. You know, the ordinary humdrum stuff of our common life doesn't get told. What gets told is the fractures and the moments of hatred boiling over. And those are part of our story, but they're not our whole story. And I need to try and keep them in perspective that there is a lot more human to human reaction across divides happening than it sometimes feels easy to believe. Thank you so much for listening to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield. Theos is a think tank that reports on and researches religion and public life and The Sacred is a project of Theos. So if you want to find out more about that, you can at theosthinktank.co.uk. Sacred is produced by me, by Dan Turner, uh, by Lizzie Harvey and edited by Drew Hawley. And the music is by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. As I said, I started a Substack. I'd love it if you wanted to come and sign up. You can find me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. You can write to the sacred email address. Uh, we would love to hear from you. I really, really value uh, communication from listeners. It really brings me joy. So thank you for those who are in conversation already. And I hope more of you will join in. Until next time.